Here's to you, Mrs. Henderson. Your grandson is moving back today. Hey, hey, hey. God help him, please, Mrs. Henderson. He looks to you to help him with his life. He lost a wife again. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today, this is one that's especially personal to me. This is one that's very fun. I would say this is in my top 10 movies of the 90s. It's one that's endlessly quotable I watch it all the time my wife watches it all the time we just love this movie it's one that I have not seen many people that I've ever met in my life don't like this movie yet again because it features Albert Brooks it's not that well known it was never a big mainstream hit and I'm talking of course about his comedy mother from 1996 which uh, just a delightful fun endlessly quotable movie and I'm so excited to finally do an episode about it. And let's see, my guest here today, I was fortunate enough that I found another Albert Brooks disciple. There are not that many of us out there walking around. I found one earlier for Lost in America, this guy Sean McCumber. And now I found another guy who is as into Albert Brooks as I am. Very excited to bring him on the show. He's an actor, director, screenwriter in uh, New York. Please welcome to the show, Mike Harlow. Hey, Mario. I'm so excited for this. Not enough people are aware of the Albert Brooks duology of Mother and the Muse, which sort of go hand in hand. And I'm so excited because this is, like you said, one of the best movies of the 90s. Yeah, and this is the fun thing about bringing Mike on the show is that I think Mike wanted to do an episode on both the Muse and Mother. But we have we have to have discipline here, Mike, and we're only going to do the one movie this time around. Okay, we'll focus. <laughs> so, why don't you tell people a little about you, what you do, how you got involved with uh, Mother, and, like, why do you like Albert Brooks? I'm curious to hear your uh, rationale here. Um, There probably just aren't that many people like him around anymore. He's sort of one of those amazing figures from that era that sort of passed, and, and, and he sort of doesn't really do... He has, I think the I don't know if he's uh, directed or written a movie in about a decade, mm-hmm. Um. But anyway, I think I saw this movie when it came out. I saw my mom and my grandmother took me to go see it when it came out. And even then, as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, this is them. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just one of those movies that everybody can relate to if you have a parent. Yeah, so do you know all of the Albert Brooks movies, or you just know The Muse and Mother? Like, do you know his entire filmography? Um, I saw them a while ago. Those are more the ones that I'm into, but I... uh... I've seen the other ones sort of when I was a kid. They're due for rewatching. Okay, and just to sum up for people who may not know, again, I'm not sure if you guys have listened to my Lost in America episode. If you haven't, you should, because that's a really good movie, and that was a good episode. But Albert Brooks, just this longtime comedian, screenwriter, just writer in general, based out of Hollywood, all of his movies kind of star him, feature him, and... uh, He's, I think this is a, a phrase that came up on my Lost in America podcast, Mike. He's called the West Coast Woody Allen. I uh, see. That's a good descriptor. That's exactly what he is. <laughs> Are you a Woody Allen fan as well? Yes, of course. I, <laughs> I'm the one person that defends him and thinks he's innocent with all his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> good. So you're the one. Okay. 
<laughs> that's how much I love Woody Allen. Yeah, and so you are also a screenwriter. Like, you do a lot of script writing and you write dialogue. Is that why these guys, Woody Allen and Albert Brooks, call out to you just because they can write dialogue so well? Yeah, probably they're masters at that. You know, they could make reading a phone book sound interesting. Yeah, and... and... Something I brought up uh, earlier on the other podcast was that, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I want to bring it up again, is that Albert Brooks is one of these guys, he's so well-respected, and people admire him so much within the industry that I don't think a lot of people know that at one point, when they first started Saturday Night Live back in 1975, it was one of the ideas thrown around was Albert Brooks would be the permanent host. Like, because he was so funny and so well-respected, we'll just base every episode kind of around him and his movies, and he'd do the monologues, because it was understood that's the level of prestige this guy has always had, and to this day, I think, still does. And I think he's sort of one of those inside figures that are not, not enough people in the mainstream really know about. Yeah, the, the, again, that's the thing. that People in movies, people in comedy know Albert Brooks, but again, sadly, he makes movies that aren't huge mainstream hits. And like you said, he doesn't do one very regularly. Like, maybe once every four or five years, he'll pump out a movie and it makes $15 million, and then he just goes back and does it five years later. And that's really the story of his career ever since. Yeah, I don't think he's even made one in about 15 years. What was the last movie? I'm trying to think of this. He did the one... Like uh, searching for comedy in like a Muslim nation or something like that. That was I, I think that was his last one. <laughs> and I don't remember that one going over all that well. Yeah, yeah. that would go over today. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you have two Albert Brooks fans here. Mike and I just both came came at this uh, this guy's movie from different angles, but we both settled on it. And Mother is my favorite Albert Brooks movie. I know a lot of people will say Defending Your Life is his masterpiece. I love Defending Your Life. I probably like Lost in America even more than that. But Mother, in my opinion, is the best film from one of my all-time favorite comedians. Absolutely. So there's a couple interesting things about this movie, Mike, uh, that we should share with people before we get into it. Um, why don't you talk about his co-star in this movie? Because you're aware his co-star came out of retirement specifically for this movie, right? She hadn't had a leading role since the 60s, which is so crazy to think about. This movie, I think, in many ways revitalized her career. Yeah, and mention who she is, who this is. Oh, Debbie Reynolds, of course. And I, it is a crime, it is a travesty that she did not get nominated for an Oscar for this because she is just so fantastic in this role. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of these movies that's a, it's very simple. It's a very simple premise. It's basically a sitcom. It's a grown man is going to move home with his mother and just watch their interaction as they try to deal with one another as a kind of a different dynamic of him being older and she being like a, a widow at this point. But yeah, when Albert Brooks wrote this movie, he's like, I want to pull someone who's had a big famous name. I want to pull someone who's had a storied career and I want to cast them as the mother. Now, do you know the other people they considered for this role? <laughs> Nancy Reagan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I feel almost like I would be betraying the late great Debbie Reynolds to say that Nancy Reagan should have done this movie. But it's funny to think about her in that role, what that could have been. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I read that just recently. For people who don't know, Albert Brooks was trying to find anybody to pull out of retirement to play his mom in a movie. And, yeah, he went to Nancy Reagan, of all people, who hadn't acted in a movie since, like, 1940 or 50. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she she actually was somewhat interested and loved the script, but Ronnie was sick and she had to attend to him. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the great what ifs. She wanted to do it. Nancy Reagan wanted to come out of retirement and play this overbearing mother. But yeah, she just couldn't do it. She's taking care of her husband. And they also went to Doris Day, right? Yeah, who's probably had a long storied history of rejecting projects for about 50 years now. <laughs> Yes. So, okay, those two didn't work out. So Albert Brooks went to Debbie Reynolds. And there's a long convoluted story here, basically, that Debbie Reynolds' daughter was Carrie Fisher. And Albert Brooks and Carrie Fisher knew each other. They went way back. Did you know, I, I just read this recently, that when they were young, Debbie Reynolds was constantly trying to set up Albert with Carrie as a romantic couple. She wanted them to hook up. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> So Albert Brooks knows Carrie Fisher quite well to the point I'm sure they were romantic at some point. And so Albert's like, well, why don't you go to your mom and see if she'll, she'll come out. And again, Debbie Reynolds hadn't done a movie since like 1960. So, yeah, she comes out 30 years after her last movie and, and just absolutely kills in this movie. She's awesome. Killed, 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 killed. <laughs> oh, she is so amazing in this role. And you got to figure in many ways she's probably just playing herself. <laughs> oh, yeah, more than likely. And you, you said it was a crime she didn't win any awards. Did she? She got nominated for awards, right? She got nominated for a Golden Globe, but I, I definitely think she should have at least been nominated for an Oscar. I mean, she really just hit this out of the park. And, she, and like you said, this is something that could have been just a basic sitcom premise. So that's the setup of it. But then they dig so much deeper beyond that. And she found such humanity in what could have just been this archetypal role. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I have nothing, I can't say it any better than you just did. It's, she's, I don't really know Debbie Reynolds. I just know her reputation. I knew her whole story. This is really the first movie I knew her from, and then I eventually went back and caught up on other stuff that she did in the past. But yeah, she just has so much charisma and natural timing. And I remember when this movie came out, that was the thing the critics were very, very, uh, excited to talk about like how good she was like it wasn't just stunt casting it was like this is like a legitimate legend coming back and reclaiming her throne for like one short instance yes wait though back up did you just say that you'd never seen singing in the rain <laughs> i i didn't specifically say that but it was implied yes. oh mario <laughs> is it is this something that continues or is just like a dark secret from your past that there was a that you hadn't seen singing in the rain yes i have seen it since i'm aware of it but at the time like when i'm growing up as a kid i'm too busy watching like the last american virgin and death stalker 2 singing in the rain perhaps isn't high on my priority list <laughs> <laughs> guess which one's the fag because <laughs> i was all about it <laughs> i wasn't going to specifically say that but yeah <laughs> It was not not high on my list. The the musicals that was not real real prominent in Mario's life playing Little League every weekend. <laughs> See, and it was very prominent in Mikey's league playing you know dress up. <laughs> yeah. Well, here we are. We're here now. We're bonding over this movie. But yeah, I have seen Singing yeah. in the Rain now, and I and I know they used to uh, make fun of her on Saturday Night Live, if I recall right. Wasn't she in Leg Up with Sherry O'Terry? Was she? I think so. Was that leg up? I'm going to totally cut this if I'm wrong, but I think that's right. <laughs> I don't remember that, and I thought I knew my Sherry O'Terry. Okay, so anyway, yeah, Debbie Reynolds comes back to reclaim her throne, and there's before we talk about going to the, the plot of this movie, there's one more thing I have to uh, talk about, is that um, 
Albert Brooks has the most amazing capacity to get music rights for his movies. Do you know where I'm going with this one? Oh, yeah, Mrs. Henderson. Yeah. So in, in Lost in America, somehow Albert Brooks was able to use Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, which was, I think, up to that point, the first time anybody had ever been allowed to use that song in a movie. It was like the great holy grail of gets. That's crazy. And fun fact, I think his next movie, The Muse, I'm pretty sure Elton John did the music to it. <laughs> yeah. So somehow Albert Brooks has these kind of connections in Hollywood. He was the one person to get Frank Sinatra to allow New York, New York. And then in The Muse, he has Elton John basically do his entire score who he'd never done that before. But this is the one where he really outdoes himself, and this is why I'll forever love Albert Brooks and the type of respect he has in Hollywood. He not only gets Paul Simon to let him use Mrs. Robinson, which is a, that's a song Simon and Garfunkel don't let most people use in, in movies. He somehow gets Paul Simon to write an entirely new custom version just for this movie. That's skills. That is skill. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, and that's the one thing if you that you kind of need to know about this movie. It's about Albert Brooks and Debbie Reynolds with his son and his mom. And there's this whole custom version of Mrs. Robinson called Mrs. Henderson, where Paul Simon literally sat down and wrote it just for Albert Brooks. And I mean, that, that takes some serious power in Hollywood to get someone to do that. He's, I think kind of in many ways, almost the male Carrie Fisher that he's just been around forever and knows everybody and has done everything and written everything. Yeah. Absolutely, and he's right there in Hollywood in all the right circles. He always has been, and again, like I said with the Saturday Night Live thing, he was in with Lorne Michaels. He, he's been in with everybody. So, again, we're talking about one of the most respected faces in comedy over the past 40 years, 50 years, who just doesn't get the publicity and the notoriety for it. So I'm really excited. We're here on Staff Picks that we finally get to delve into Albert Brooks again. Yes. Okay, so let's set this movie up, Mike. Anything else you wanted to say before we go into the storyline here? Um, I think we kind of covered it. Okay, so again, this movie is the story of a writer. His name is John Henderson, played by Albert Brooks. And uh, as most Albert Brooks characters are in movies, he's a bit of a loser, a bit of a schlub. Oh, loser does not begin to cover it. So I guess we might as well establish now. Are you Team Beatrice or Team John? Well, I'm team both of them at certain points, but I will say this. Every time my wife watches this movie, she always has the same opinion. She's like, who is this little shit that walks in and takes over his mom's life? Yes, thank you. Your wife is very smart. That's the thing. So I did a rewatch of this in preparation for this, and I haven't seen it in a couple of years, and I was shocked by how much on my rewatch I hated Albert Brooks's character. He is just an ungrateful little son of a bitch. And he's shocked then that women don't want him. Would you want to date him? I don't. <laughs> no. And my wife had brought that up earlier on Lost in America. What she loves about Albert Brooks is that every movie he plays, he's always this unlikable dick. Yes. She's like, I know he's probably like that in real life. He's probably overbearing and a perfectionist and he's just whiny and clingy and he just nitpicks. And she's like, what I love about him is that he's smart enough to realize that's funny and he'll put it in a movie even if it doesn't make him look good. What's funny, too, is if you think about it in this movie, Albert Brooks is in many ways sort of the entitled millennial before there were entitled millennials. <laughs> he is. That's perfect. Yeah, he 
for I'm just going to sum it up real quick for people who don't know this movie. He shows up and he basically takes over his mother's life and dictates how their relationship's going to be. And yeah, he's really just an entitled millennial. He wants all this credit and all this love and all this attention that he has never earned. Yes, and nothing is his fault. It's all his mother's fault. He's a grown man and everything is his mother's fault. Yeah, so to answer your question very roundabout, I am Team Beatrice in this movie. Yes, same. <laughs> but at the same time, just a, as a comedian who appreciates comic premise and setup, I love that Albert Brooks is so irritating because it works so well. I don't know why. When I first seen the movie, I remember that you were supposed to be on his side, I thought. But it's amazing seeing it as an adult, how it's more, there's so much more of a give and take. Yeah, I mean, and there's some moments you can see the mom just being a jerk to him and just needling him as well. Like, it's it's so real, and that's the thing about this movie. It's just, it's almost yeah. like a stage play. It's just dialogue-driven and sitcom-y, but the di dialogue is so real that you can see your relationship with your parents or your kids, depending on your age, that there's so much real in this movie, and I, I, I know Roger Ebert even pointed that out in his review. He's like, I was listening. I saw it the first time, and I la I, I laughed. And then the second time I listened, I just sat there and I listened to the audience laughter. And it was a different type of laughter than you hear in most movies because they're not responding to like the setup punchline, setup punchline. They're responding. It's like a knowing laugh. Like I recognize my life in that scene. It's like a knowing type of laugh that's different than you see in most comedy. Yeah, because I think everybody's been through these same things and has had their parents say every single one of these same things to him. I'll say, my dad is exactly uh, Mrs. Henderson. <laughs> it's all the same stuff with the food stuff. <laughs> Are you eating? Oh, yeah. Well, I come from an Italian family, and I have the... I had the prototypical Italian grandmother, and so getting out of that house without extra servings of food was like a a uh, a, a military mission almost. It was very difficult. <laughs> same. I'm Italian and Jewish, so imagine what that must be like. Oh, you got both. You got the mothers on both sides. Oh, twice the guilt. <laughs> Okay, so um, why don't you describe, for people who've never seen this movie, what are the depths of this guy's a loserdom? What, what, what exactly is wrong with John Henderson as we open this movie? What isn't wrong with John Henderson? He is uh, starting divorce number two. Wife took all the furniture. She couldn't even leave him the furniture. So he is now in an empty apartment, alone, miserable, unhappy, unsuccessful, and he's experiencing writer's block on his new novel. Yeah, so he's a uh, science fiction writer. It's, it's implied he's written like three or four books, and he's maybe middling successful, not really like a big name, and he's not starving either, either obviously. We see him living in a house. He's not Stephen King. Yes, as many people will point out through the movie, he's not Stephen King. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> but yeah, his wife has left him, and we start with him with his buddy in a bar. Like, John's going through his life trying to figure out why everything's going to shit in his life and why he fails at everything. And they're talking about, he's like, why do all these women leave me? Like, it doesn't work. I've never had a successful relationship. I'm 40 years old. And so he and his buddy are sitting there. What are, what are some of the conclusions they come to why maybe these women leave John? Oh, well, naturally, it's just all his mother's fault. And let me just say to anybody listening this, if you are middle-aged, if you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, there has to be some expiration date in life for when you can stop blaming everything on your childhood. No, that's a good point. I 100% agree. We, My wife and I, we've been married 20 years. We have a teenage daughter. 
and our daughter is 18 and she's constantly bringing things up. It's like, well, you know, when I was a kid, I got in trouble for this and my brother didn't. So she's even keeping score on my wife. Even to this day, says like, well, that's going to show up in therapy in 20 years. That's going to show up in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so the moms know this. They know what's going to be held against them later. Yeah, they can just uh, keep record. <laughs> so, yeah, so John has, comes to the conclusion, the, the reason that all of these women have left him and all his relationships have failed over the years is because these women don't believe in me. That's the problem. And in his mind, he comes to the conclusion, my mom also doesn't believe in me. So this must have stemmed from the start for my mom just never really believed in me. And that led to all my issues. Charming, ain't he? <laughs> okay, so now we're going to meet the other character. And again, there's only really like three characters in this movie. There's John, his brother, and his mom. And so we meet John, and now we're going to meet his mom, the intro to Debbie Reynolds, and one of my favorite... Yay! <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite character introduction scenes in the movie. Mike, why don't you take us through the uh, TV delivery scene? <laughs> so, this is taking place in the 90s. She has the people come deliver her a TV from Sears or wherever. And, you know, as all most people uh, of that age do... <laughs> That was that insulting. I'm sorry of that age. That's fine. <laughs> um, she argues with them that the TV is too green, so they change the color for her and they turn it to a soccer field. And she's like, "Oh, oh no, it's too green." <laughs> yeah, she just the mom is a kind of set in her ways, and we just see bickering between her and the TV delivery people, and just. It just doesn't go well. Just a very awkward scene to watch. And this whole movie is going to be awkward scenes to watch if people just not communicating well. Oh, you just, this is just a movie you watch through your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Albert Brooks has no, he has no uh, hesitation turning the screws on the awkwardness. It's kind of like The Office times about 10 sometimes, some of these, these scenes. Yeah. Okay, so now we get the first conversation where John Henderson, you know, he's divorced and lonely and depressed, and he calls his mom. And we see this wonderful dichotomy they have where they're, they're kind of passive-aggressive needling each other the whole time. <laughs> just, it's wonderful, and you see, you get to learn so much about the characters just from what one person says and what the other person hears, and it's not always the same thing. And I love the piece of uh, 90s technology where they have this video phone that keeps uh, chopping up and cutting out. Well, the video phone comes later. This is the call waiting. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, there's a running joke throughout this movie. One of my favorite things about this movie is that the mom cannot figure out technology, which I hate to do, you know, th go throw stereotypes at the old people, but a lot of times old people might not know technology all that well. <laughs> stereotypes exist for a reason. <laughs> okay, let me tell you my story here. This is a good one. My dad... My When I was growing up, I was like in my 20s, my dad's in his 50s, and he would come over and he'd always try to fiddle with my computer. And I'm like, stop fucking with my computer, dad. Like, you're going to mess it up. I don't know. He was not allowed to touch electronics in my house ever. So he was 50. <laughs> Keep in mind now, now he goes to his parents' house, who are in their 70s, and he's constantly fixing their computer. He's always fiddling with it. And I'm like, you are tech support for like this entire Del Boca Vista retirement community or whatever. <laughs> like all these people were calling my dad as the tech guy. And meanwhile, I'm like, my dad has, I have a restraining order against him that he can never touch my computer. So yeah, that is, I have a long storied history of old people not being able to use technology. <laughs> Was he able to fix them or did he just make it worse? 
I think he broke everything. I think everyone had the, every virus in that retirement community. Yeah, my dad still comes to me and asks if he should get a profile on the face page. <laughs> I'm like, you know, dad, if you're calling it the face page, no, 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 no. Is your dad a Russian bot? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> the both of us, we just short circuit. <laughs> Yeah, so, again, there's a running joke in this movie that the mom cannot figure out technology, and there's a hilarious scene right at the start where she's trying to figure out call waiting, and she's trying to switch from one call to another, and she keeps, and she's frustrating her son, who's telling her, you know, you're still on the line with me, it's not working, I don't know why you pay for this technology, so this will be a running trope through the movie that the mom is well-meaning, and she's kind of settled into a nice retiree life, but she's perhaps not the best at technology. No, and this is another thing that constantly happens with me and my dad is uh, <laughs> the call waiting. Oh, hold on, I have a call. Hello? Still me, Dad. <laughs> Still me, Mother. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very much a, this movie is a product of its time because the 90s is when the technology really started taking off with all these inventions. So this is where the generational gap between uh, parent and child really widened, I think. Yeah. Call waiting, that was like a big thing for the 90s. <laughs> okay, so John talks to his mom, and they end this call with them kind of sniping at each other, and, and she says, I love you, and he's like, I know you think you do, <laughs> which is a great little dick thing for a son to say to a mom. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going, going to a date where we see John on a date with a young woman right after, fresh after his divorce. Now, Mike, who is this famous actress we see showing up randomly in this movie? She's the queen of showing up randomly in 90s movies, Lisa Kudrow. That's right. We have Lisa Kudrow on a date with uh, Albert Brooks. And also very weird sort of role for her to play because I think she gets like third billing in the movie and you expect her to have this part and then she's only in two scenes. Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's only three characters in this movie, so she may indeed be the fourth biggest character in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's an odd role for her. She plays the ditzy blonde who doesn't understand things. Oh my god, how revelatory. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really funny scene of Albert Brooks trying to relate to this young woman, and Lisa Kudrow's got to be a good 20, 25 years younger than him, right? Well, the funny thing is, Albert Brooks, when they filmed this, is only, I think, 10 or 15 years younger than Debbie Reynolds. <laughs> yeah. So he's just a very awkward scene of him trying to relate to Lisa Kudrow on a date, and she doesn't really understand how his books work or what science fiction is. Just a fun little awkward scene, and, it, and this is where John just decides. He's like, I just maybe I'm just not good with women. We need to go to the root of this problem and figure out what happened, why I'm this bad with women. And this is, the, uh, <laughs> this is where we meet the third character in the movie, his younger brother, one of my favorites in this movie, Rob Morrow. Oh. So great. <laughs> All right, so set the scene here. What, what, who is Rob Morrow? What does he play? And what is his relationship with John here? <laughs> uh, he is John's brother, So, and he is the golden child. He is the one who Beatrice loves, and he's a mama's boy, and they are just basically up each other's ass all day. <laughs> he bought her the video phone because he can't be away from her for that long, and now he's married and has kids, but is still such a mommy's boy. So in many ways, the total, uh, the mirror image of John. 
Yeah, this movie does delve quite far into the concept of a mama's boy. And Jeff, this is the younger brother, Jeff, is one of these guys who calls his mom every single day, even though he's married and has kids and has a life, is a very successful sports agent. And he's just so codependent on his mom, it's almost painful to watch, I would say. Yeah, or even his wife gets irritated with it down the road. Yeah. So these two kids, and uh, John and Jeff and Albert Brooks is explaining to his brother, he's like, well, you know, I think the reason I'm so bad with women is that I don't have a good relationship with mother. And they start talking about this, and John, right there, gets the brainstorm. This is the crux of the movie. Albert Brooks is going to live, move back home. He's like, I will move back home with mother, and we'll reestablish our relationship, and I'll move into my old room, and I'll just set it up as if I'm a teenager, and we'll basically start over. We'll start over our entire relationship as adults, and we'll just see where it goes. Oh, it's so painful. (laughs) And again, you're just... If you're just listening, you're probably laughing at this premise just because Albert Brooks is such a dick. And it's like he's going to move home with his mom. And you know they're not going to get along. We've already established that they have this weird uh, passive-aggressive relationship. And he's so excited about this idea, and you're just laughing because, like, here we go. We're going into sitcom territory. And we get this big, long intro where Albert Brooks drives up to Napa. He he lives in Los Angeles as a, as a screenwriter, as an author. Now he drives all the way up to San Francisco, all the way up to Napa Valley. And he just, like, surprises his mom. He's like, hey, mom, I'm home. I'm moving in, which my mom would have punched me if I had done that, I think, at age 40. Same. <laughs> and by the way, the shot where he is driving there, it's a long crane shot across the bridge, and that's where they play uh, Mrs. Robinson, yes. redone as Mrs. Henderson. So... I'm convinced that that's where the whole budget of the movie went on that one sequence. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, and I can see because the rest of the movie is just set pieces in, like, living rooms and stuff. But, yeah, there's a big, big budget moment here. They get the song. It's really cute. Like, And here's to you, Mrs. Henderson. Your grown son is moving back today. Hey, hey, hey. God help him, please, Mrs. Henderson. Looks to you to help him with his life. He lost a wife again. It's a cute song, but yeah, right from the start, like I, like my wife will always say, how dare he just show up and take over his mom's house? What a douche. <laughs> yes, and you know, she's got her flaws. She's set in her ways. She's an old lady, but she's so wise and sweet and like, I think... Most people would love to have her as their mother. I mean, needling and all. So what an ungrateful little shit. <laughs> even So you'd like her to, to have her as your mother, even if she serves you meatloaf with the top scraped off? Oh, please. Do you know all the kids in crack houses and orphanages who would be like, please feed me old meatloaf? <laughs> ungrateful little bastard (laughs) (laughs) yeah and again to albert brooks's credit he doesn't try to hide the fact that john's kind of a douche he just goes for it because it's funnier even though he himself the star of the movie doesn't always look all that sympathetic so i have to you have to tip your cap at a certain point oh for sure that's just part of his brilliance (laughs) okay so here we go i would say there's two or three or four scenes in this movie there that are among the funniest scenes I can think of in a 90s comedy. And we are about to hit one of them, which is the big standout scene in the movie where he, he shows up at the house and he demands food. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now let's get beneath the protective ice of this thing. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll lead people through this. Why don't you kind of set the table? You're a screenwriter. You can put words and in in images into people's heads. Explain to people who have never seen this, this scene how it goes. This is going to be a tough one. This is a challenge. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that every person has been through. When you go to your parents' house and they serve you all the food that you don't want, so she has bricks of Costco food in her fr- falling out of her fridge and her freezer. Uh, month-old cheese that's the size of the table, meatloaf that's been there forever. Um, and he tells her over and over again, I'm not hungry. But, you know, parents can't receive that message very often. So. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's complicated by the fact that John, as a pretentious Los Angeles uh, writer is a vegetarian and he doesn't eat meat. He's very much against meat and everything he eats has to be organic. Uh, and his mom is very much. You can probably, you can probably relate to this being Italian. I would be disowned by my family if I was a vegetarian. <laughs> oh yeah. My, we have a family restaurant up in, uh, up in the Seattle area, an Italian called Lanza's Ristorante. And my aunts all run it. And they have told me people that come in there and start throwing around vegetarian and gluten free, like gluten free. If you walk in there and say you're gluten free and you expect Italian food to be gluten free, she's like, like uh, my my relatives will like, I'm gonna fucking stab somebody if they come in and say that. <laughs> they will chase you out of there with a the wooden spoon. Yeah. So, the mom in this movie has no concept that her son is vegetarian. She can't grasp that. And so, the food that she's can you have lamb chops? Yeah, lamb chops is one of her offerings. <laughs> it's like spaghetti with meat sauce, and he's like, well, that's meat, mother. I can't eat that. And she offers him beef stew, and he's like, well, I can't offer, I can't eat that either. And then the favorite part is the meatloaf, which I mentioned earlier, that the mom offers him meatloaf. And he's like, well, you know, that's meat. I can't eat that. And she's like, well, I'll scrape the top off. And he's like, that's still meat, mother. How does that help? She's like, well, it's less meat. I don't well, know. it's less meat. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally picture me going to my Italian grandmother's house someday, and I could see this exact conversation playing out if I tried to go meatless on her. Oh, that is a high crime and misdemeanor meatless in an Italian home. Oh, it's crazy. That's, and that's the thing. If, uh, if the mother in this movie were Italian, it would be over in five minutes because she would chase him out of that house with her wooden spoon in hand. Because that's what Italians do. You will get the wooden spoon. <laughs> All right, so I guess that says something for America, that we're open-minded. We will give a chance to the meatless people. Oh, please. We're so open-minded, our brains have fallen out. Yeah, so the mom is trying her best. And again, the scene goes on for about 10 minutes. It's crazy and how well-written it is. And she's trying to give him cheese. Again, like Mike said, this block of cheese that she's had in there for like 20 years, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But the best part of this scene, she gets out, uh, what is it, the electric turkey carver to cut a slice of the cheese. And she freezes. She freezes. Every single piece of food she has is in a bag and then in the fro- in, in the freezer. And so she's trying to, it's like almost like a chainsaw, trying to cut off a piece of frozen cheese for her son. <laughs> Look at the date. It's hmm? three years old. Well, it's been in the freezer. Yeah, but how cheap was it that you wanted to buy this much of it? Honey, this is wonderful cheese. It comes from Switzerland. Very hard to get. How could it be hard to get? It's all here. And she offers him a bagged salad. She has these salads that she makes. She pre-makes and bags them and freezes them. And he tries to eat it, and he's, like, throwing up. He's like, this lettuce is 100 years old, mother. And she's like, oh, it's not that bad. And it 
brings back, you know, I have stories of going to relatives, like random distant aunts and uncles when I was a kid to their house. And if they're not used to having kids around, like they'll pull out these snacks for the kids and the snack maybe have been there in the <laughs> cupboard for like 20 years, like old Nilla wafers or something. Yeah. My, uh, my great grandmother, when I was growing up, it was always the pot roast. There was always a thing of old pot roast in the fridge that she would force upon you. <laughs> and nobody wanted to tell her, we don't want your goddamn pot roast. God rest your soul and all. <laughs> They're trying, though. They're trying their best. But, yeah, it's, if you're not used to having people over to eat, it's always awkward serving people. And so, yeah, they're just bickering. And then we get to the, the coup de grace here, as it would, at the end of the scene where no, they cannot agree on anything that he can possibly eat. But she's like, well, what about ice cream? Sherbert. I have the most amazing sherbert. And he, of course, is hesitant. He's skeptical because every piece of food that's come out of mom's kitchen right now has been old and dilapidated and way past its prime. And so she takes out the 99-cent giant off-brand thing of sherbet, which is covered in a layer of what she calls protective ice. <laughs> yes. And he goes, you've named the thing that's growing on top of the sherbet? Yes, it's... Just the this is probably the standout scene in the movie. She pulls out this off-brand ice cream called Sweet Tooth, and he's like, "I've never heard of this brand. Is this like warish rations from World War II? What the hell is this?" <laughs> and yeah, and there's a, a a layer of ice on top of the ice cream. It's like the see-through crap. And she's like, "Oh, like like you like Mike said, she's named it. That's the protective ice coating that keeps the flavor in underneath." And that's the genius of this movie is that. I can't imagine anyone seeing this scene who hasn't experienced this. Oh, yeah. It is so recognizable. You wince watching it. Well, the thing is, you watch the scene, and yet it's so recognizable and so universal, and then you realize, how have I never seen this scene in another movie before? How is this the first time I've seen this scene? But it's true. I've never really seen it exactly like this before, even though it's such an obvious slam dunk for a comedy scene. Yeah, and I think that's really the genius of Albert Brooks is he has a way of making the mundane so compelling. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and this is the most mundane, the most universal scene in the movie. And again, it's so painful to get through. And by the end, uh, Albert's like, well, you know, we'll go to the market and I'll buy my own food. And so that's basically agree to disagree at this point. I will get my own food, mother. You can have your food. And again, he's just shown up. And he's told this lady how her life is going to be. So he's just, you know, an asshole at this point. He's just really dictating how her house is going to be run. And rejects all of her wisdom. And because behind all of her eccentricities, you know, what is she teaching him to be thrifty and save money? And these are good life skills. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Everything she says in this movie is accurate. If you the more you watch it, the more you realize that she's throwing out pearls of wisdom. And he just he's so dense, he refuses to catch them because he's so self-absorbed. Yes. A perfect millennial, one might say. <laughs> he was the original millennial. Yeah. He's the O.M. <laughs> OK, so so now Albert has come home and not only has he dictated how the food situation is going to go. He has also dictated how the room situation is going to go that he tells his mom, you know, I want to move back into my old room. And she's like, well, no, that's oh. the sewing room. And he's like, yeah, I don't care. Let's get all your stuff out of there and let's move all my stuff. All my high school stuff is in the garage. So uh, what, what did you think about this scene, Mike? Oh, first of all, why do you even still have all your high school stuff, all your participation trophies, basically? 
Uh, so he, he tells her that the, all of this stuff, no, he, it's not good enough for him to sleep on the couch. He's going to redecorate his entire room like he's 14 again. And I'm sorry, Albert Brooks, but you ain't 14 anymore. Yeah, it's. I would imagine if moms are watching the scene, they would especially cringe because, yeah, he really just di dictates to his mom, I'm moving all my stuff in, let's move yours out. And she's like, well... It's, it'll, it'll be a lot of work. It's all dusty. And he just he just ignores every one of her uh, her pleas. And at one point in the scene, they talk about how he's going to go down to like uh, Sears or Home Depot and get one of the day laborers to help him move stuff. And they have they have a discussion over how that works and how you how you do that, which I was one of the more underrated scenes in the movie. It's just there's something so tragic about a grown man hanging on to high school. Is there anything worse than that? Well, yeah, and this isn't even the typical one, like, where the kid was a jock, and now he's, like, fat and overweight. Yeah. Like, it's like, Albert Brooks, you don't get the sense he was a jock, you get the sense he was a dork back then, too. <laughs> yep, but he's proud, but those were still the good old days, <laughs> and they weren't so good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great scene where he, he gets a, hires a day laborer, and he comes in, and they help move all the stuff, and it's, like, literally like Albert Brooks is back in the 60s, I think, I would assume, 1969, 70s, somewhere around there, because, like, what's on the wall? He pulls out, like, an old Barbarella poster? <laughs> yeah. and little meaningless trophies and the, you know, what's it called? The triangle thing. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that they put on the wall for, that comes from high school. Yeah, you got the trophies, you got the posters, his toys. He's got these little robot toys. Uh, <laughs> it's so painful. Well, that's the thing. I'm 44 years old, so Albert here in this movie is like 40, 41. So I could not fathom going back to my mom's house and pulling out my toys. Like the toys? Maybe the posters, not the toys. I'm in my 20s and I couldn't. My parents would laugh in my face. <laughs> And be like, yeah, get your ass home. Get on the train. <laughs> Here's your sweet tooth. Take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a great montage here in this movie of him setting his room up. And like I said, Albert Brooks is really good with his music and his movies. And he sets this to maybe my favorite Beach Boys song, In My Room, which is perfect for this montage. In my room. Okay, so so John is back at home with his mom. He's dictating how their life is going to go. And this is where we get the one of the funnier subplots in this movie is the brother, the other brother, Jeff, the younger brother, who's the, the codependent mama's boy, starts getting pissy that John is getting all this attention from mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Norman Basie. <laughs> well, because you mentioned earlier there's a gift. Jeff, the rich sports agent, has given his mother so he can attend to her and can in, uh, interact with her. What is this gift, Mike? Oh, straight out of 1996, a pixelated black and white video phone <laughs> that has about the picture quality of an original Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. And I will say my wife loved this movie as much as I do. This is her favorite part of the movie, is that we get endless shots of Jeff, the, the mama's boy, trying to communicate with the mom over these picture phones, these old picture phones. And the mom cannot figure out how the phone works. She's constantly, like, moving her head from left to right, trying to line it up in, this, in the viewfinder. And, like, she's, like, she's, like, sweating. She's working so hard. She's, like, doing calisthenics, trying to figure out where to hold her head. And it's just these hilarious scenes of her talking to Jeff as her head just goes flying by from left to right out of frame in the picture phone. <laughs> and meanwhile, he wants to monopolize her attention. So he's, like, 
kissing into the camera. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just really creepy. Again, Norman Batesy, like you said, the Jeff, he, at first he thinks it's weird that his brother's moved into the house, but he's going to start getting possessive. And so right now he's just thinks it's weird. and He's trying to communicate with mom and he's upset that he can't talk to his mom every night because John is there. But again, it'll get worse as we go along in this movie. And what's odd, too, is that he, you know, while being this mama's boy, he is the more successful one. He's the one who does have a wife and kids and a career and a life. So while he's not portrayed in the most flattering light, maybe there is a lesson to be learned. Um, respect your parents, kids. Oh, that is. That's actually a very good point. Although it makes me wonder when he's making love to his wife, if she if he accidentally calls her by his mother's name. Oh, okay. oh. <laughs> you know, I was going to go there. Maybe he blows kisses at her like the video phone. Yeah, well, it's, it's it sounds like I'm making an off-color joke, but in the movie they actually do later. The brothers start accusing each other of sounding like mother's lover. <laughs> Which is funny because I remember when I was a kid when this movie was out, they put that everywhere in the trailers and in the TV spots of Albert Brooks saying he's sleeping with his mother. So I got brought to this movie as like a seven-year-old thinking that it's about this grown man who's in a relationship with his mother. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. So you thought your parents took you to like an incest comedy? Yes! I'm still in therapy! <laughs> wow. So you were very disappointed when it turned out to just be a Debbie Reynolds comeback vehicle. Or relieved. <laughs> okay, well that's good. I I had no idea that one would expect that. But yeah, they this the movie does it goes along. We're gonna get more and more jokes like that where it's clear that one of the brothers is a little too close to his mom, and the other one wants to be close to his mom, and the mom couldn't give a shit either way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have this first scene with Albert Brooks setting up his room, and they have the food issues, and here we go to the, one of the other great set pieces. And I said there's a couple in this movie that are. A couple scenes that are as funny as any comedy in the 90s. Now we're going to go to the supermarket scene, which is just as good as the kitchen scene. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> okay, so set people up into this one. How Lead us up into how we end up at the, the local market. Well, he needed to have things to put on his, his side of the refrigerator, so they decided to go shopping together. And she's trying to pass along all of her Depression-era tips. She tells him, I grew up during the Depression. And he's like... <laughs> Wait, weren't you two? <laughs> so uh, there's a constant struggle and a give and take of buying what's cheap buying ver versus buying the not no-name off-brands. crap. And they get into this with jelly, with peanut butter, with, with every food item along the aisle. <laughs> yeah, just ten more minutes of comedy here of just them shopping together. And every single time she will go for the off-brand cheapest thing possible. And every time he wants to go for the fancy organic you know, frou-frou one that's way, that's way more expensive, like three times the price, and they just bicker and bicker because they don't see eye to eye. And every time he wants to buy, like, the organic $10 jelly, she'll say, well, you're just being fooled. That's the same as this one. It's just in different packaging. And he's like, no, it's not, Mother. You're just cheap. You've installed cheapness in yourself, and you installed it in me, and that's why I don't believe in myself. It's like, what a horrible thing to say to your mother. Right, and meanwhile, she's the one who's a homeowner, and, you know, she probably hasn't pissed all her money away. Like, he, you know, he's been taken to the cleaners by these women. Exactly. That's his two, her two years in the Depression have taught her that. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> 
but even even before they get to the the, the supermarket, there's a great scene in the parking lot where, <laughs> just if you've ever driven in the car with your mom or dad and you're a, an adult on your own. It's always frustrating because you want to tell them how to drive and they don't listen to you and it gets awkward. And there's a wonderful scene here where they're fighting over trying to find a parking space. It's so so frustrating to watch because he's making her nervous and she doesn't see the obvious space. And they just circle around the exact space like four different times before he yanks the wheel and pulls her in. So it's just a fun little relationship scene right there. Oh, yeah. And then we, we cap off the uh, the supermarket scene with them... <laughs> I love this scene. They get to the supermarket, the uh, ice cream aisle, and of course she reaches right in for the Sweet Tooth, the cheap brand, and he reaches in for the Hagen Dazs. And there's this look of total disgust on his face when he looks at her with the Sweet Tooth. I just love that little shot. <laughs> and uh, but the the apex of this scene is they run into her neighbors. So two other old yendas from the neighborhood <laughs> they run into with their cart. Yeah, it's that the mom in this movie, Albert Brooks's mom, has a habit of every time she introduces her son to somebody, she apologizes for him or she she has a phrase here. She's like, this is my son, the other one. And Albert's like, great. So I'm the other one. I'm the unsuccessful one, mom. Thank you. And yeah, so we we run into the old, like you said, the Yentas in the in the grocery store. And they're all just gossiping. And, and the mom is like, yeah, well, this is my son. He's has writer's block. He doesn't he hasn't written a book in a while. He's not Stephen King. Like and he's like, thank you, mother. <laughs> and can we just talk for a moment about how amazing Anne Haney is, who plays one of the uh, plays one of her neighbors. She's one of those people who appeared in every 90s movie. I think she's passed away now, but she was. She's in every 90s comedy that you watch. She was in Liar Liar and on Alley with Beal, I think, and a bunch of stuff like that. And she was just so great. Yeah, see, I didn't know her name. I just recognized her. But yeah, she's the one. Later, we see her watering things with her hose, right? That's her? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So these two neighbors and, and just this running joke that the mom will always apologize for John when they meet people. And then it just it caps off as Debbie Reynolds and uh, Albert Brooks kind of walking out of frame. And you hear the mom say, now let's get some of your non-meat things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love that line. And she also feels the need to not just apologize to everyone they meet for him, but tell them his life story. Oh, he's having a divorce. The second one. They just can't seem to stay married these days. Yeah, it's, you know, I have a lot of personal history with that because my mom was like that with me. Oh. We'd go to the clothing store and I would just hear, like from across Sears, from across JCPenney, I would just hear my name, blah, 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 Mario. I'm like, what the hell is my mom telling the store clerk about? <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I cringe so hard when I see this because I've lived that. I know how that works. Same. My dad does the same thing. <laughs> Okay, so John and his mom come home, and they have their separate groceries and separate food, and she's even divided, like the Maginot line right down her fridge where his stuff goes on the right, so her meat things won't touch his. And this is where we get in another little passive-aggressive little sniping fit where she's trying to ex figure out, why are you here again? What is this experiment? And she has this great line. She's like, I know, you're having problems, and you're blaming me. Is that it? <laughs> Basically. Yeah, that's really what it is. And we get more food here where she's feeding him. She's bringing out all this food, and he's got a great line. He's like, stop, Mom. It's like Fantasia. <laughs> Put the food away. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is I remember also uh, when you get the DVD for this movie, the title of the chapter was Food Questions. So this is literally like the third or fourth ex extended scene that is about food. <laughs> 
has so many little great dialogue moments and the mom has some wonderful little cutting comments at her kid like you like you said earlier she's super sweet and super nice and rational and everything she says makes sense but she she loves to take these little digs at her son and he doesn't even realize they're digs sometimes where she says uh what's the one line he says she says i just wish your father were alive so he could take some of this blame <laughs> And then the one at the end is the best one, the capper. She's like, you know, honey, if you talk to women the way you talk to me, I can see why they leave you. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Dropping the truth tea right there. That's where mom drops the mic and walks out. Oh, it's so great. Okay, so what else? They have a couple more uh, little, not not so much bickering, but just they ca- cannot communicate. And they're talking about his writing career. And she, like, offers constructive advice. She's like, well, your science fiction isn't that good. They're not relatable characters. And he, at this point in the movie, he will not listen to his mom's advice. This will come back later. But at this point, he does not take her seriously as a writing critic. And her big, her big piece of advice is that she uh, should stop writing characters with big heads. Yes, which is always good advice. I mean, you you write screenplays. Do you put people with big heads in your mo- in your screenplays? Just metaphorically, big heads. <laughs> <laughs> so we end this scene with uh, John and his mom, where he says, "Well, let's go out tonight to dinner. I'm going to take you out. We'll have a nice little time and just discuss, and we'll get to know each other as adults." And she's like, "Well, okay." And he's like, "My treat, mom. No more house cheese." <laughs> And you can tell also that Debbie Reynolds' character in this movie is somebody who never really does anything for herself and just has this very quiet, mundane life. Because every time he wants to do something for her, like take her out to dinner, she's like, oh, no, we shouldn't spend the money. Yeah, and we, we will find out. That's that's the thing. We're, we're both laughing about this movie and calling it a sitcom, but it actually gets kind of sad at the end. This is a very poignant movie when you find out the mom's history and all the things she gave up to raise kids and it's a very sad tale but at this point he just doesn't take her seriously he just sees her as his mom this overbearing mom and starting in the next scene we're going to start to get to know her a little better actually so the, the next scene they um they go he takes her out on a tinder date yeah to san francisco so they they go out and they go to this little dinner date and they're all dressed up and they just talk about writing and again she's offering constructive advice as a fellow writer perhaps would but he doesn't see this he just says like your mom you don't know what you're talking about trust me I'm a writer I know what I'm doing you don't have to critique my books and that's what's so irritating about him is he doesn't think she knows what she's talking about with anything and I'm sorry she's kept herself alive all these years she's outlived you by decades so maybe listen to what she has to say that's right team Beatrice here stepping in yes (laughs) but she has a really biting remark like she'll offer these really insightful comments to him about his life and why maybe people don't like him and maybe you're a little nitpicky sometimes and fussy and then he just won't hear it and then she drops this bomb on him she's like you know maybe when you stopped eating meat your writing became a little thinner He just looks up at her with the most dumbfounded look, like, did my mom just diss me? Did she drop a bomb on me there? With the salad hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. And it's just basically almost freeze-framed on him with the salad in his mouth. (laughs) So great. And again, Debbie Reynolds just times that line so well. Oh, she just, she crushes every line of hers in this movie. Yeah. Although, again, we have to give credit for Albert Brooks for writing that dialogue and serving it up to her. 
Oh, absolutely. So it's like a, a team effort. Yes. I, I wish that they would have made other movies. I wish that they would have just become a full comedy duo and done a whole series of these. Yeah, like a vaudeville team almost. They're so good together and their timing yeah. is so perfect. Yeah. It's such a shame they didn't do another film together. They could have even done a prequel or something with the father, and it could have been, you know, uh, Jack Lemon or James Garner or someone. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 in general, I'm not a fan of sequels or prequels or stuff like that, but I could totally see it in this movie just because the characters are so outstanding. And then I, yeah. I know to, you know, to his credit, Albert Brooks probably doesn't, he has no interest in sequels. He does create stories and creates yeah. worlds, but yeah, it's, it is a little shame that there never was any more exploration of these characters because they're so perfect. Yeah. Or even any, even just them playing other characters in a different film together. That's how great they are together. Oh, they could have been a science fiction movie where they both have big heads. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's interesting, too, is at one moment, it's just a passing line in the movie. They mentioned something about him having a sister, uh, and it's never explored. How fantastic would that would have been if they did another one where Carrie Fisher plays the sister? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. When, does they, when did they mention the sister? Is that early in the movie? Uh, I think it might have been in that scene where they're in the living room. Uh, it's almost just in passing, something your sister is here. Hmm. I, I had never caught that. Thank you. You've given me a new reason to appreciate this movie. <laughs> there are always new reasons. Okay, so so the mom and the son just a uh, we're gonna see them continue to bond and just try to understand each other and try to get along. And they go to the mall. There's a big long scene where they're out shopping for clothes, and every single time they meet a salesperson, the mom will explain her son's life story again, as my mom would have done that I hated. But this is what the mom does. Oh, this is my son. He needs to buy some underwear. He just got divorced. He has writer's block, and he's like, Mom, stop that. And so he finally has to tell the salesperson in front of her. He has to be like, look, other than taking our money, you don't give a shit about us, right? <laughs> and he's like, no. And there, there's a great scene here of her constantly doing this in every store. And at the end, you know, uh, John tries to get some revenge on her and just show her what it's like, where he drags her into Victoria's Secret and says, hi, this is my mother. I need to buy her some crotchless panties for her sex life or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're totally unfazed by this. They're like, of course, what size will that be? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, John and the mom, they're a work in progress. They're getting there. They're still trying to learn how to understand each other. And this is where we get the, the rub here of the third, the second brother, where the brother Jeff is just getting pissy that Albert Brooks is spending all this time with his mom. And whenever he calls up, mom's not available to talk. And so... <laughs> Jeff decides to invite his mom down to get her away from John. John basically stomps his feet and won't let mom go. So they start having a tug of war over their mom's attention to okay. the point that it gets uh, Jeff's wife gets involved here, where Jeff's wife is like, why the hell is this so important that your mom has to come down here? I think you're right, Mario. I think he is saying her name in bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see? There you go. Vindicated. <laughs> that was like the foreshadowing. <laughs> but yeah, so... Jeff is just, uh, I love this guy, this, the uh, secondary brother, who's such an extreme mama's boy. He just whines. Yep. His mom won't come down and visit, and he whines and whines because mommy won't come down. And like you said, the wife even smacks him down. She's like, oh, you're weird. Like, what is up with you and your mom? Why is it such a tragedy that your mom can't come down? She's like, I'm here. Your kids are here. What's up with this? So we get this big pissing match over who gets to spend time with mother, where the mama's boy will literally drive up to Napa to kind of kidnap mom almost. 
Uh, and you have to wonder with the other brother, how did he even get married? Like, what woman would marry that? I mean, would you want this, like, beta male mama's boy? Well, he makes a lot of money, so I'm sure that helps a little bit. But, yeah, it's like... Ah, uh, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, it's clear that she knows she's second in her li in life behind the mom. And, yeah, it's it's always a weird thing when you see these middle-aged men that are mama's boys. But you see a very, very strong version of it here in this movie. Ooh. Okay, so so the brother comes up. So now we have the little brother basically slap fight. And we're talking about middle-aged men here. One's 40, one's like 38. And they're like almost having a little dick fight in the living room over who gets to take mommy. Oh. <laughs> and I love that the brother comes up, the little Jeff shows up, and the first thing he requests at home is he wants some sherbet and cheese. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he loves his mom's cheese. So the so uh, John takes the brother and shows him his room, and he's horrified by this all of the trophies and toys and mementos from when he was a child. Um, and they basically argue over uh, mommy who gets her attention. <laughs> yeah. And again, these are forty-year-olds, very successful professional men arguing over who gets mommy's attention. And and at, at some point, Jeff storms out, and they're having an argument outside over who gets, who loves mom more, who mom loves more. And this is where uh, Albert Brooks starts making incest jokes. He's like, yes, I love my mother, and I love having sex with her. And Jeff's like, why would you even say that? That's disgusting. And John's like, why does it even bother you that I say that? Are you jealous? <laughs> And the best part of this, though, is that the neighbor is right there in the next yard, the old lady from the grocery store. <laughs> and Beatrice is very concerned about image and what the neighbors think and what other people think. So she's just standing there try waving her arms and trying to quiet them down. <laughs> Stop. I'm Debbie Reynolds. No incest jokes. Thank you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Would you got to hand it to her? What a good sport she is to be game for all this. Yeah. Well, there's so many times in this movie you're just amazed she doesn't just haul off and punch one of her sons. Right? I would she has just, the patience of a saint. Yeah, if I were her, I would just be like, screw all y'all and take off for the Bahamas or something. <laughs> Leave them there. Like, Jesus, should have worn a condom. <laughs> this is like this movie is basically an advertisement for birth control. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Again, this movie is hilarious and it's very well received, but I can see how moms might watch this movie and kind of nod knowingly. Yep. Like if you've raised adult sons and you've had codependent mommy boy issues, you kind of sit there and watch this movie and just nod. And you're like, yeah, it's exactly like this sometimes. And the best part of the scene, too, uh, how it ends when the brother takes off is he mentions something about the video phone that he got from work for free. And so you can tell that being so, it's so petty. She takes note of it and looks at Albert Brooks and goes, oh, free? And he goes, yep, I told you. What kind of gift is that? <laughs> yes. It's just so petty. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, the brother is just constantly trying to score points over who their favorite child is. <laughs> and again, we're, we're talking about this like it's a sitcom. It's not a slapsticky, silly movie. This is all, no. it's all portrayed very realistically how this dialogue would go between characters you know in real life. You may have lived through scenes like this. So it's, it's so realistic and so awesome and just... It says so much about the dynamic between mothers and sons. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, and in, in less capable hands, if anybody else had written this or made this movie, it could have been some, uh, you know, Chuck Lorre crap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd be on our 10th our season of the most beloved sitcom in America in lesser hands. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, it's going to turn a little poignant and sad here because up to this point, all we've learned about is John and Jeff and their mommy issues and their issues with women and how pathetic they are. And we are about to learn a little more about Beatrice, the mother, and why she is the way she is. And it's one of those things, if you're not ready for this, this is kind of it. It kind of packs an emotional punch, I would say here. Oh, it's so good. Okay, so John has bested his brother. His, his younger brother has gone home to California, San Diego in shame. And John has earned the right to go out with mom tonight on another fancy dinner date. And the mom's like, well, I can't do it tonight. I have plans. And he starts... I have a date date. I have a date date. Yeah, we find out that mom's banging somebody. Yeah, go Debbie. That's right. Yeah, Debbie Reynolds is a has a very fulfilling sex life, as we find out here, that there's this guy, this older guy who comes into town for business, and every time he does, they meet up, they go on a date, they have sex, and John is horrified. He's like, Mom, I never knew about this. And she's like, well, there's lots of stuff you don't know about, John. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm both sort of happy for her and saddened that Debbie Reynolds probably had a more interesting sex life than I do. <laughs> well, as long as it was more interesting than Albert Brooks. That's all, really all that counts here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so the, the uh, dinner date comes, this guy Charles, and he comes and picks her up, and, and uh, well... Well, they're out on their dinner date, and again, John is stunned. He has no idea. He's never seen his mom as a woman before. He's just seen her as a mom. He doesn't really get that she has a life outside of raising him. And so while she and her boyfriend are out on a date, he starts rummaging through her closet. Just he's bored. He's got nothing to do. And as, you know, douchebags will do, they'll start digging through their parents' stuff, trying to find <laughs> dirt on them. And what does he find, Mike? Oh, he finds boxes full of stories she had written, these short stories and novels that she had written and just buried in the closet for years. So all of this time that he thought she was meddling in his writing, she is coming that for, for, to that from a point of view of being a writer who buried that. So he sits down and reads all of her stories and finds that they're good. Yeah, it's a... It's a very poignant moment in this movie where up to this point we just see her as this, you know, old fuddy-duddy mom, but he sees her now as a human being. He realizes, he just, he finds this box of all these stories she was written, and I think it's it's under her maiden name, so it's way back from before she got married, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so he's reading her stories, and they're really good, and he's like, wow, my mom was a really good writer. And this is where the mom comes back, and she sees him going through all her stories, and she's mad. And this is the first time Debbie Reynolds really snaps where, you know, Hulk smash here. She goes, turns, she gets enraged, and she's like, how dare you go through my things? And he's like, Mom, I'm not just somebody. I'm your son. And she's like, yeah, like, put those back. That's my personal business. You have no right. You're in my house. And they have a big argument. And this is where we find out the truth, like Mike said. The mom was once a very prolific writer, had a very definite talent, and what happens was she got married, and her husband encouraged her to stop writing because women back then really weren't supposed to have a career. He said, just give it up and have kids instead, and so this is why she tries to help so much with his writing, that she was a writer too, and she knows what she's talking about, and she had to give it up for these kids that she eventually kind of resented. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Any Anything that stands out to you about this scene? This is one that always kind of yanks at my heart a little bit. It's a very sad scene when you learn the truth. Me too. She said she went to school and got a scholarship as a writer, and that's where she met his father, and that's when she had to stop doing it, basically. Um, 
And I think what's cool, too, is before that, this is sort of the first time where you see her set a boundary with him or at least push back at it, you know? Yeah, she just really lays down the law here on where, how far she'll allow him to go and how far she will push back. And this is really the limit right here when when he is delving into her past. And he, John, for all his faults, is no dummy. He gets it. He's like, I realize, I get the truth now, mother. And she's like, what? And he's like, this is why you hate me. I get it now. And she's like, well, I don't hate you. And she's like, no, this is why you're fine with my younger brother, Jeff, who's an agent. He's no threat to you. You don't care. You, whatever he does is fine and perfectly good. But I went into the career that you could have gone in. So I'm a threat to you. And when you see me succeeding, it hurts. And he's like, this is why you resent me. You hate me. I stole the dream that you had. And he's like, and what is the, the line he says? He says, I don't see you as my mother anymore. I see you, I see you as a failure. A failure. Yeah, a failure. But he's like, no, not in a bad way, in a good way. It's wonderful. I see you as a person. I understand our relationship now. And he is jumping up and down. That's why you hate me. <laughs> yeah. And he's elated about this. Yeah, and again, it, it seems like a cruel thing to say, but she even kind of dawns in her eyes where it's maybe the first time she's thought about it that way too. And she's like, you know what? You're actually right. If that's what you need, then yes, I think that's actually true. And her performance in this scene in particular is just so beautiful. Her facial expression, her eyes, you can see the pain on her face of how long she had buried this talent of hers. Yeah, just a, a very sad cautionary, not even a cautionary tale, a very sad commentary on a basically what women went through in that era and how much they had to give up for their lives and their kids and this as they say sometimes this quiet desperation that the housewife would have had in the 40s 50s and 60s just knowing you have no purpose on this earth other than to raise kids even though maybe you had a gift maybe you had a talent and you were not allowed to do it and like mike said debbie reynolds just absolutely kills it in the scene and you can see it in her eyes when you realize the truth and then he and Albert and she and her son actually see each other as human beings now for the first point for the first time, like as peers almost. And this is sort of also the first time that we as the audience see her as a woman and not as a mother. Yeah, no, it, it's just really good. And it's I, I'm trying to think of other scenes kind of for movies around that area that have a scene like this or other movies that have a scene like this. And. I can't think of any. It's just it just kind of flips the movie on its head all of a sudden, and it's so much more poignant than you think this movie was going to be. It's just so good. <laughs> yeah, and just with that, pretty much the experiment is over. John's like, I get it. I it all makes sense to me that you resented me, you hated me, and he's like, I don't mean that in a bad way. That's just the truth. I came in, I started doing what you were good at. It hurts you. My success hurts you. But at this point now, like I. This is all the only way I see you. I don't see you as my mom. I see you as another writer. So it's like, I don't need to live here anymore. I can move out and we can just talk on the phone as writers. And there's no baggage and no issues. And like everything has been solved. And the mom, well, still, she understands the truth. I mean, she, she gets, he actually hit the nail on the head with how this probably went down. She's like, well, you know, whatever makes you happy, you're my son. And if this is what you need, then I love you. And it's, very, it's a very, very sweet, real scene, I would say. And she almost doesn't want him to leave at that point now that they've seen each other in this different light. Yeah. 
I think she actually understands him a little bit and maybe she might give him the benefit of the doubt whereas she wouldn't have before now that she gets his pain as well. Like, maybe I didn't love this kid as much as maybe I wasn't super nurturing to him and admittedly it's not really on me, it's not really my fault, but that's his reality so I guess we'll just go from here. And so they they have made their peace and he moves out and they hug each other and... It's a nice little double whammy at the ending here where Albert Brooks is driving home and and uh, he meets a girl at the gas station who actually knows him as a writer. She's like his one reader. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, they decide to drive back together. She believes in him. He's found the one woman out there who believes in him. And yeah, they have a big, long conversation in the gas station. They're going to drive down to L.A. together. And it is implied that he understands women now and everything will end well, even though she'll probably dump him in 15 minutes because he's still irritating. Well, then, but the scene then at the end where uh, is so beautiful, it uh, cuts to her typing on the computer and she begins writing again and writing about this whole journey, this experiment that they had done. And so she's sort of come out on the other side of this, having reclaimed her own personhood, aside from just being a mother and doing what she wants to do. Yeah, I always forget that if I haven't seen this movie in a while, but that literally is the ending that Mike just said, that it has unlocked her personality, her career, her life, and now she decides, you know what, maybe I'll start being a writer again too, now that I understand the reality of our relationship. And it ends with her writing a book on the little computer that he left, where he, she is actually able to master... Word perfect, or whatever the generic word processing program is, so good for her. Yeah. And I love that so much, too, because it would have been very easy to just end it on him meeting a woman, and as if that's what the story is about. But I love how they close on her, because it really is Beatrice's story. Yeah, again, there is a reason the movie is called Mother. It is the story of her mm -hmm. where she reclaims the gift that she once had, and maybe she's going to start a second career, and you can see the happiness in her eyes. This is what always brought her joy was writing. Yeah. Just all in all, a really sweet, cute, smart, real movie that just absolutely beloved by Albert Brooks fans. I can't think of one person alive who wouldn't like this movie. It's so well done, so sweet. Um, anything else you wanted to add that I skipped over? I can't think of anyone who wouldn't relate to it who hasn't been through every one of these things that get brought up in this film. Yeah, especially if you're like a middle-aged man and you're a mama's boy like Jeff. Maybe you'll see this movie and you'll realize you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a prick like Albert Brooks and you're a bitch to your mother or your father, watch this and be like, oh, maybe I should be more understanding of them. and Maybe they do have wisdom to impart on me. That's right, as the mom said. The mom even spells it out to her son at the end of the movie. She's like, I was around a long time before I had you, Buster. So it's like, don't start big-shotting yeah. me. I had, I lived an entire life before you showed up. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. She says all, uh, all kids think that their parents uh, just appeared when they had them. Yeah, that is a great line, and that is credit to Albert Brooks for writing that line. That is such an interesting perspective for, and I don't know if he ever had kids, so that's, that's he's, he's like he's just writing a from the perspective of a middle-aged woman, and it's very hard to do. I mean, it's hard to write characters if you don't know them that well, right? I would, I would assume you'd agree with that. Oh, yeah, but it is just so spot on. Every word rings so true. All right, so anything else you want to say about Mother, about the, the masterpiece of Albert Brooks here? It's just a crime that she didn't get an Oscar for this movie. Yeah. Not that it matters, but I, I wish that they would have done more films together. 
Yeah, and did she do many movies after Mother? Like, this was her big comeback. Did she keep going, or was this like a one-off? No, it sort of reinvigorated her career. She was in that movie uh, In and Out. She was on Will and Grace. She Halloween Town. She really did, started doing a lot of things in the 90s, and then I guess she sort of slowed down after that. Yeah. Okay. See, I didn't know that. I, I do remember her in In and Out. Now that that's right. Okay. So she did actually kind of have a renaissance, which is good. Yeah, and she did Halloween Town. Did you ever see Halloween Town? I have not seen Halloween Town. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it was this amazing '90s uh, Disney Channel movie. <laughs> <laughs> this Halloween movie from the '90s. Is it as good as Singing in the Rain? Nothing is as good as Singing in the Rain. <laughs> okay. How dare you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I, I retract. Retract. <laughs> okay. Before I sign off, I have to mention something here. Um, I I made a big error when I talked about Lost in America with Albert Brooks, and that I always say these are one-person movies. They are not. Albert Brooks had a screenwriting partner. Do you know about this, Mike? No, he did. Okay. Yeah. There was a lady named Monica Johnson. And for years, she was Albert Brooks's screenwriting partner. So every time you think of an Albert Brooks movie, it's really an Albert Brooks slash Monica Johnson project. They wrote together. They were like two halves of the same brain. And that's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of Albert Brooks movies now is because she died a couple years ago. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I just wanted to, uh, to correct the error I made in Lost in America. I did not credit Monica Johnson for how good that movie was. It's the same with Mother. She's right there with Albert Brooks. There are two people creating these movies. So again, to uh, anybody who knows Monica Johnson, I apologize. I left her out in the last one. She is just as important as cre uh, to creating these movies as he is. And she was always the one behind the scenes, like only writers that read the credits kind of know about her. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And I guess that's why he never made another one. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a big reason why he has slowed down because he's missing his better half, one would say. Oh, what a shame. Yep. And Debbie Reynolds is gone now, too. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. It's, I mean, obviously the passage of time is, is cruel and it moves on and on. And yeah, we've lost many of the people that made this movie great. But again, we will always have Mother from 1996. Again, I think one of the best movies of the 90s. I, th I know think you, you said it as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I just hope people either know this movie and listen to this podcast or listen to this podcast and now we'll rush out and track it down because I could not recommend this one any more highly. It's almost a perfect movie. It is so beautiful. It reels you in making you think that it will be this conventional sitcom sort of setup and it goes so much deeper than, than that. It becomes something that's so much more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, very well said. Um, okay, before we sign off, I know you have a couple projects that you'd like to plug. Mike is working on, a, what is it, a, a TV series that you're working on? Yeah, uh, it's called Cigarettes and Valentines. And what is the status of it? Where are you? Where does it stand? When would people be able to find it or see it? Uh, so we have a Kickstarter going now for the next uh, 20 days, something like that. Um, and the show is basically about being gay and single in New York from a very punk rock, politically incorrect perspective. Uh, it's basically if a show like Sex and the City is a glamorous, glitzy night out, cigarettes and Valentine's as the hangover of that, where you're broke and alone and nobody likes you. Um, so if that's something you care to see, check out, uh, cigarettes and Valentine's on Kickstarter or facebook.com slash cigarettes and Valentine's TV. All right. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, I, I've, uh, I know you've had some uh, 
people already pushing back on your script because it's a little too punk rock for its own good? Is that a good way to describe it? <laughs> well, you know, everyone is such a snowflake. Everyone's so PC now. You can't say anything without them flipping out. But that's a big reason why we're doing it independently and crowdfunding it so nothing has to be watered down and I don't have to be apologizing. And It's just sort of a brutally honest picture of reality in this, of being single in the digital age. Yeah, no, I, I wish you a lot of luck. I know I've heard you talk about it. I've seen your struggles. Mike, uh, Mike is very much a rabble-rouser of my own heart. He, uh, <laughs> we have very similar ways of looking at stuff, and he, he writes stuff, and he's very unapologetic, and he's like, if it's real, it's going in the script. Is that That's about the way you're approaching it, right? Oh, thank you. Yes, hopefully. That, that really means a lot to me, though. Thank you. Yeah, no, I really hope it does well, and I'll be following it. And again, I hope you guys check out Cigarettes and Valentines, Mike's passion project that he just... Uh, I, I think you just agreed that because they you raise a certain amount of money, you're going to run naked down the street. Yep. <laughs> Which uh, the video, the update videos in there. I said for every thousand dollars we raise, I will do some stupid task that people vote on, and that's what they said the first one should be. So, <laughs> literally whoring myself out to raise money for my show. But Kickstarter's going well, so hopefully we begin production next month. All right, sounds good. And again, I, I thank you for joining me. Mike is someone I have wanted to do a show with for quite a while just because he's, he's really funny on Facebook and I love listening to his opinions. And when I heard that we both like Albert Brooks, I'm like, well, this is bound to happen. So <laughs> finally excited we got to talk about Mother. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I'll be out there searching for more underrated, underloved movies that are encased under a protective sheet of ice. <laughs> and I will talk to you guys later. Bye. I'm going to give you some cheese. That's a lot of cheese.